0: to hear some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Lambda Days will be taking place on the 9th and 10th of February of 2017. Lambda Days is a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore this amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erling, Haskell, Elixir, Sharp, Lisp, Clojure, and many other emerging technologies are more than just languages. There are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. Visit www.lambdadays.org to register and keep updated as information becomes available. And if you would like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at FNgeekery on Twitter for a code to get 15% off ticket price. CATSCOF 2 will be taking place in Dublin, Ireland on the 18th of February. Catscough is a single track, not for profit conference. With hands-on workshops, with an amazing lineup, it looks to be an exciting conference. Visit catsconfcom thats dot com, for more information and register. Closure D has been announced, it will be taking place in Berlin, Germany, on February 25th of 2017. Early bird tickets have sold out, but regular tickets are still available, and you can get a discount when you purchase your tickets for BobConf. For more information and to register visit www.closured.de. The day before D, on the 24th of February in Berlin, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, their goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the ranch. For more information about the conference, visit bobconf.de, that's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. Elixir Days is coming up on March 2nd and 3rd in St. Augustine, Florida. Early registration is now open, and the conference includes keynotes by Prague Dave Thomas and Sasha Yurich. Visit elixirdays.com that's elixirdaze.com, to keep updated for information and your register. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event March 27th through the 30th. The Unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summer Pattern Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. Erlang Elixir Factory 2017 is on the 23rd and 24th of March. The factory includes a tutorials day on March 25th and training on the 20th through the 22nd, and the 27th through the 30th of March. Early bird tickets are on sale through February 26th. To keep updated with information, visit www.erlang-factory.com slash sfbay2017. The FlatMap Oslo call for presentations is open through March 1st. FlatMap Oslo is a functional programming conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM, taking place on May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to 2017.flatmap.no/cfp to learn more. And announcements of speakers are being done on Twitter at at atflatmapazzo. Elm Europe will be taking place in June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zappucki and Richard Feldman will be speaking. Early bird tickets are currently available, but there is no telling how long they will last. For more information, to register, and to submit your talk, visit elmureup.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Horace Proctor, and this week with us, we have Odi Mbebu. Odi, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself today? My name is Odi Mbebu. I'm a senior software
1: developer at Cyberspace in Lagos, Nigeria. I work, Cyberspace is a networking company. We do software as well. So like educational systems, tests, uh, computer-based tests, and things like that. That's basically it. I started writing programs in, that would be 2004, yeah, 2004, when I was still in school. But before then I was doing web design. So I'm like, I was a web designer before I became a software developer and I've been a software developer ever since. Mainly I started out with basic before Pascal, before C++, believe it or not, went to Java, C Sharp, and a PHP before C Sharp, and I've been a .NET developer ever since then.
0: So you get into software, you were doing some web development. You mentioned just off the top even a nice list of languages from a broad side of experience of, if nothing else, Imperative or procedural languages with BASIC and C Sharp and Java and the like and Pascal. Did all those come through your college experience or were some of those picked up as you were playing if you started doing web development and playing on the website? Okay, so
1: most of them were from my college experience. The ones I did professionally were .NET, Java, and PHP. I did did a lot of PHP. I'm not proud of it and, but yeah, it's a, it was an experience because coming from a web designer background, it was helpful to be able to like inject little scripts here and there to like add functionality, like adding dates and times to my website. So that was what got me interested that and a little bit of JavaScript. So even up until now, I'm primarily a web developer, even though I do mobile development as well, specifically Android. Okay. So. That's basically the things I do.
0: And PHP doesn't seem to be anything to be ashamed of since it powers a huge, huge portion of the web. And I've only played a little bit with it, mainly, again, putting some scripts in with WordPress sites and having to help tweak super small stuff. But listening to some other podcasts, it sounds like it's come a long way from the early days even.
1: Yeah, yeah, it has. It has because like the last version of PHP I looked at, I saw a lot of improvements. They added closures to it. They have some cool libraries, so they kind of uh, broke away from the whole page life cycle. Because before PHP scripts were tied to web pages, so now you can actually execute uh, like PHP from the command line, like Ruby or Node, and so on and so forth. So yeah, it has it has come a long way. It's just it has a legacy that came before it. It's just too much, I guess. So it can't really break off from that. There are a lot of mistakes that were made in the early days. Its design wasn't very cohesive. You had like five or six ways of doing certain things and you know, a lot of other things.
0: And you start getting in and you make the transition from PHP, do some Java, you're in .NET and you pick up F-Sharp. Was F-Sharp your first functional programming experience? And what was the thing that helped put that on the radar
1: Okay, so I think this is very interesting because there are some
0: people who see a functional language
1: like F-sharp or Haskell and immediately fall in love with it. They immediately get why it exists and they just run along with it. I'm not one of those people. It took me a while to really like F-sharp, but once I did, once I got over the hump, it was just, you know, smooth sailing. And part of the reason why I feel like I want to be active in the community is to help other people like me get over that hump as well. So how I got into it, my first functional language is, believe it or not, JavaScript. I remember the first time I saw a function inside a function in JavaScript and my brain could not compute. I was like, what, what is going on? Does, is the outer function trying to call? Uh, you know, it was just very confusing for me. But after I got it to the idea that, okay, you can assign functions to values in JavaScript, it kind of became natural, right? So when I now finally, when C Sharp 3.5 now added the Lambda expressions and functions, I started to see the importance of using functions as values. That was like my first functional language and the first idea of functional programming I I knew. At at the time, I didn't even know it was called functional programming. I just knew that there's this funny thing that JavaScript does with uh, functions, But anyway, fast forward to 2013, I used to have... Right now, I don't have that commute anymore, but I used to have a two-hour commute from my house at Very Far Away. And that was every day, going and coming, two hours, going, two hours, coming back from work. So, because the traffic in Lagos is very terrible. So, but what happened was I started listening to podcasts just out of... At least let me be doing something productive during my commute. And the next thing was I used to listen to dotnet rocks and they brought a uh, young you've had him as a guest on your show right
0: yeah i've had Yang.
1: yeah yeah Kui. so he was talking about dotnet rocks and he started talking about f sharp and at that point i had never heard of f sharp before so i started wondering that okay what the uh, c sharp does everything i want why would i want yet another language and he pretty much sold the language he said this is it Something that would take a Java programmer three to four days takes him three to four hours or something like that, or five to six hours or something like that. And I was blown away and I was like, I really need to see this F sharp. I've heard a lot of hype about it and stuff like that. But the first thing I noticed when I saw the syntax of F sharp was it looked weird and cryptic to me. I just couldn't understand it. And immediately I would swear off the language. I would be like, ah, I'm never touching that F sharp. I'm never touching this functional programming. I don't understand it. I, it's for math people. I've heard that myth before. It's for math and data scientists. So as the years went by, the .NET Rocks people, I was watching talks from Rachel Reese, from Don Time, from Thomas Petracek, and, you know, the F-Sharp community. Every so often, I would stumble upon a talk where they would discuss F-Sharp and everything. But it wasn't until I saw, there was a video I saw by Ben Albahari. I think it's is it Joseph Albahari or Ben Albahari? I can't remember the particular one. I'll send you the links so you can add them to the show notes. That talk really changed by perspective. Because what he did was he tried to explain functional programming, but purely from the perspective of a C sharp programmer would understand. So in other words he used C sharp constructs to like explain the continents of functional programming. He even explained even all the way to Monads, he explained monad, he explained functions, he explained laziness and all those kind of things. And it was at that point where, and I remember at the beginning of the talk, he talked about a power continuum, a power spectrum between the most powerful languages and the least powerful languages. And when he was saying that if I were to pick the most powerful language today, I was expecting him to say C-sharp. He said Haskell. And I was like, Haskell? What's this Haskell you speak of? And I was like, okay, I'll look at this Haskell later. But he said that C sharp would solve, uh, Java would be in the middle. And C Sharp would be slightly more powerful than Java. And I started to ask myself, what is this functional programming he's talking about? Like, I don't guess why he would assume that functional programming is the next evolution of object-oriented. So, But in the talk, he goes on to explain how you move away from giving the machine instructions to describing your problem and allowing the machine to figure out how to tackle your problem and so on and so forth. But ultimately, it was after I watched that talk that I realized that functional programming is a serious field, and it actually has a lot of potential than object-oriented, because he explained, like, with respect to parallelism, with respect to the multi-core world we are moving into. And that's when I now took a serious interest in functional programming. So I now started, you know, taking tutorials on Haskell, and man, it was a very steep climb. But what you know, struck me, I would have learned it, but what struck me, though, was that, you know, at some point I had to ask myself, you know, I have to be pragmatic about whatever it is I've learned Considering that I work in a .NET shop, then it makes sense that I should, if i am learning functional programming, I should use F-sharp since the tools will be the same, the libraries and all those kind of things. So that's where my interest in F-sharp came about. And now what I feel is my goal is to find a way of encouraging People who are like experts in C-sharp or who have like exhausted breath of the kind of things C-sharp can offer. I probably would already use this C-sharp in a functional approach. So my goal is to help those people see that F-sharp is actually the next evolution for them in terms of skills and whatnot.
0: So you have a little bit of background with functional programming, as you say, through your JavaScript and the functional programming, probably more of functions as first class data constructs. And then you see this talk about C-sharp and functional programming explained in C-sharp terms that drives you to start looking at Haskell and eventually F-sharp as well for the pragmatic side. But what were some of those things that kind of clicked as you're watching this presentation talking about functional programming in C-sharp? Was there any scars that you had from doing your PHP or Java or C-sharp that when you saw this and said, oh, I can do that in C-sharp, and it would actually solve my problems, much less move over to a language which would eradicate some of those problems anyway. But what were some of those things that kind of appealed and said, yes, this is something I want to dig in deeper to, other than just other people saying, this makes me more efficient?
1: Yes, yes. I have even a very good example of that. Well, I work in an enterprise, what's considered an enterprise anyway. We we have a lot of software. We have a lot of projects we've done and things like that. But to be honest, the software quality isn't that high. So what used to happen is you would use someone's library or DLL and it would crash in mysterious ways. You would, you know, write applications and somebody else, somebody's method would, you know, behave in a particular way that threw an exception. And you may be having a drink on Saturday. And all of a sudden, you get a a call that, ah, an exception has been thrown and all those kind of things, all because someone threw an exception and didn't catch it. Or he didn't foresee something and the case will be. So when I moved into the company, we inherited a lot of legacy code and those legacy code were very uh, volatile. So initially, we had to come to a consensus and say, okay, fine. Rather than just wiring up code together and the code would just be throwing exceptions randomly. Let us all follow a particular interface or an agreement that your functions, instead of returning the original value, they should return an operation of something, you know, an object that wraps around the value. That object will tell you whether or not the method call was successful. And also it would give you the error message if anything bad happened. So initially, okay, we now, I now wrote the library. It was just like a few lines of code initially. So we now use that to like wrap all the dangerous methods, or wrap all the dangerous calls in our applications so that our applications will fail gracefully. So that when you called our API endpoints, rather than returning a yellow screen of death or something like that, it would return a nice error message for the person on the other hand to like handle it, you know, gracefully. So, but when we did that, uh, we now came across a problem. We're not like, okay, what if I had two operations? What if I called two methods and I needed to combine their results in some way? And, you know, that kind of a thing. And, you know, uh, from experience using things like link and observables and task of T and task parallel library and so on and so forth, using those things, I now realize that, okay, there's this pattern that those libraries follow. I think I could use something like that. Maybe have a next function that I would just pass it a function that returns the second operation. And that way I can, like, you know, compose operations together. Right. So. As you can see, I was stumbling across the monad pattern, but I didn't know that it was the monad pattern. So what I did was I had like a shoddy implementation. And it was after I'd watched that video that it clicked that my operation is just a monad. And if it's just a monad, it can follow all the protocols of being a monad so that you could compose them and things like that. So immediately I now got into action after, after watching the video, made it into its own library, put it on NuGet, and now implemented all the different methods of the monad pattern. Then as I dug deeper, I now noticed that the link expressions in C-sharp, that's the link syntax, is actually not link syntax at all. It's actually not tied to I enumerable. It's just a facade over the monadic bind. It's a facade for calling monadic binds. So it's syntax sugar in C-sharp to allow you to do what is essentially monadic binds and stuff like that. So it was at that moment it clicked and I was able to you know add support for that to the operation library. But when I did that, I now saw, I can't remember, I think it was a a blog post from Scott Washington when he was talking about computation expressions. And I realized that in F-sharp, they even take it a step further. So in other words, all sequences, asynchronous, anything, async, sequence, and so on, are all computation expressions, which are just syntax sugar for calling bind on objects and stuff like that. When I realized that, it now dawned on me that F-sharp takes this whole concept of Computational Expressions, Monads, and stuff to another level. You know, it was at that point, it dawned on me that there is so much more to F-sharp than C-sharp, that F-sharp is essentially a superset of C-sharp, and that's when, you know, the fire for F-sharp started to really burn.
0: It's interesting that you kind of came into functional programming through inventing your own kind of Monad. Sounds like it was something like the Either Monad. Yeah. But you came across that first, and that's what struck your spark, as opposed to being so that. I've been bitten by mutable objects. I want something immutable or the types aren't as well. And I want something that's more typed like a Haskell or F sharp or the pattern matching or some of these other things. But you apparently got into it via discovering and implementing the monad pattern without even realizing it. So that's an interesting approach that you kind of came in from the side that's the quote difficult side of functional mm-hmm. programming than just making and starting everything out as immutable or just passing functions around and realizing, even if I had a delegate in C-sharp back in the early days, that that was essentially the attempt at doing a function as a first-class data object. Yeah, yeah. So you pick that up, you get that information, you start seeing all this. You said you started looking into Haskell. What was the first steps of saying... I see the power here. I'm falling in love with some of these ideas because I've already kind of had it click. What happened next?
1: Yeah, so what happened next was I started looking into the Haskell ecosystem and you know, a language is beyond just the tools. It's just it's beyond just the language itself. You have the tools, you have the ecosystem, you have the libraries, you have the skill sets and so on and so forth. So What ended up happening was, okay, I started looking at Haskell, I got a book on it, I started reading it. Um, I even learned how to use like Cabal and all those stuff. I actually downloaded Lexa, the Haskell IDE. I started playing around with it and stuff like that. But what happened was I have to work, right? And as I'm doing my work in my office, I'm busy doing this uh, Haskell thing and I don't know how to introduce it to my work or find a way of really, it's like, it's almost like the knowledge I was gaining, I couldn't really apply it, you know? So I was like, okay, maybe what I should do is let me first learn F-sharp, then from there, like, move on to Haskell and all that. So what struck me about Haskell, though, was I am actually a, a big fan of type safety. And I saw that the Haskell compiler is like, that thing is a work of art, to put it lightly, because... I think the language with the compiler together, they are like a very strong team. To the point where it catches a lot of things at compile time. That the chances that you would have a runtime exception is really, really low compared to like C sharp or languages we are used to. So that's what that was the thing that actually you know got me interested in Haskell really. But why I didn't you know pursue it further was because it was a different syntax. It, it would me learning the new library having a new tool chain and all those kind of things. And I wanted something that I could easily apply right now, like, you know, uh, stuff like that. So that's, that's basically what happened.
0: And how much time did you spend with Haskell as you were starting to dig in and learn these lessons before you said, I like this, there's something here, but I'm not going to be able to take advantage of everything I'm learning. I need to look at F-sharp.
1: Yeah. So I had played around with Haskell for like, 2-3 weeks. In fact, there's a video on YouTube. I don't know if I, I can find it later, but it was like an hour long, and that video takes you through high school, like a blitz from starts from zero to hero. So it starts from the very beginning. It explains the high school language, the syntax, how to do pattern matching and all those other stuff. But the way I learned things, I learned things by doing them. So I needed a project I could do, that while I'm doing this, I'm learning the language as well. But there would be no motivation to do the project if I couldn't immediately apply the things I learned from the project. So that was basically what happened. So I now decided, okay, let me look at F-sharp first. Then by the time I master F-sharp, I can now go back to Haskell. school. At that point, I would have a stronger footing in functional programming to take Haskell on.
0: And so you jump into F-sharp, you start digging in, you start learning this, What did your project look like then? If you were probably the only one in the area or at your office that was into this, but you still wanted a project, how did you find something that was applicable if you weren't finding something that was applicable in Haskell? What were you picking up on F-Sharp that you started working on? Was that just a side project at work that you were doing just side by side with something else? Or what did that look like?
1: Okay. So, yes, it was a side project. I was trying to build an e-commerce application. I called it Doomia. I even did the, it's on my GitHub. I even did the like planning and strategy and all that using ASP.net and, you know, just F-Sharp in general, just seeing what the F-Sharp flow looks like for building real world applications, you know, like web APIs using single page applications like Angular and so on and so forth. So I was building a full system. I think I didn't finish, but I had gone far. But what immediately struck me was that the tools, the patterns I used when I was building like C Sharp applications, I couldn't use them for F Sharp. Uh, Not quite. I could use them for F Sharp, but it didn't quite sit right. For example, in C Sharp, using the clean architecture, you'd have to like create interfaces, use dependency injection, have services and managers and all those kind of things. And it's a lot of bloat. Right. Whereas F sharp is a very succinct language. And in F sharp, instead of doing that, you can use a partial application and injecting into functions and things like that. So I needed to figure out a way of building real world rich client applications using F sharp, but doing it in such a way that I'm not repeating my C sharp habits in F sharp. I'm writing it as a native F sharp application. That whole approach was a journey unto itself for me.
0: And you start to feel comfortable enough. And listening to your conversation with Scott, you mentioned that you were able to get it into your work and you've had other coworkers use it. Yeah. What was the adoption process that said, hey, I got this new language. We're going to start taking advantage of it and not be essentially shuttled out the door being crazy of saying, whoa, 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 no, 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 we're good here. What was the story around that to be able to say hey, I've got something, and work to sell it and actually get it adopted.
1: Yeah, so the process of that was very difficult to say the least because there is this article, I think, uh, I can't remember who wrote it. The title of the article is kind of link-baity sort of, but it's related to what the article was talking about, which is why your F-sharp evangelism is not working. And essentially, the post boiled down to the fact that C-sharp is good enough for pragmatists not to jump on it right so in every culture in every group you have the early adopters you have the pragmatists you have the can't remember the other group and you have the laggards or so so the pragmatists you need enough pragmatists to jump on your platform for your platform to become mainstream right so the pragmatists in my office when i showed them f sharp they were like no we're good we have c sharp already i had to Explain to them using things, showing them things like property-based tests. Because I think I've seen that test is a really neat way of introducing F# into a system. I started by rewriting most of the tests using F#, and making them property-based tests. I also had to show them like the succinctness of F#. So I would reimplement certain things, right? Certain DLLs that we had used like massive amounts of code to do. I would re-implement them in F#. And by the time they saw that, oh, this is far more succinct, this is something that we can plug in and use, this doesn't require us to go and start learning a new language or, you know, changing our tool stack. That was what, you know, helped the adoption, you know? So a lot of times we in the F-Sharp community, we like the new and shiny, but we need to realize that for more people to come on board, we need to be able to demonstrate to them that, no, use the tools you are using now, right? All your skills are not wasted. And if you can show them that, they can reuse everything they know It to make the transition much easier. Then at that point, you can now start using whatever sophisticated tools that your functional programming provides.
0: So property-based testing, I've heard, is one of those hooks, as you mentioned. You've also shown the conciseness can become appealing depending on if people have your first gut reaction of, oh, I'm not sure about the syntax and can actually get over that. What were some of the other approaches? Did you use something else like you got approached to with that video of saying, here's some C sharp stuff that we can do, but like, here's how it translates into this based off your coworkers, scars and experiences and things they were complaining about. Were there certain things that helped make the F sharp sale easier in that sense as well?
1: Yes, yes, yes. I think I was kind of lucky, right? Because like I was telling Scott, right? We built a real-time system, a very massive computer-based test that was for the whole nation. So while we were doing that, we needed to be like getting the responses in real time. Then at the end of the day, now do like batch processing on all of them. So that experience was a harrowing experience because we now realized that Essentially, just, you know all the buzzwords you hear about functional programming, that, oh, immutability is important, or this is important, or that's important. We were actually born by them before we, as a team, now realized that, okay, immutability is important. We need to figure out how to do immutability properly. We need to start looking into actor models and frameworks and things like that, too. So when I was bringing F-sharp to them, I was coming at them from the perspective of, we have stretched C-sharp to the limit of what we can do here are some things we can do in F-sharp, like using ACA.NET in F-sharp to serialize actors and transfer them. Or using, in fact, this was a big one, using F-sharp to write DSLs. Because, for for example, we got to, there was a project we were doing for a school, for a group of schools, where each school had certain rules for promoting students. And those rules varied wildly. So you you had no way of knowing what school a school would prefer and the school may want to change their rules dynamically so we try to figure out how to hard code those rules as text and store them somewhere maybe a database file system or something like that so that the school could change them right so initially we tried to use expression trees expression trees in a c sharp to accomplish that but it was a messy hack you know but by the time I saw Phil, I think it was Phil Trefford's uh, talk on using F Sharp to write DSLs and how incredibly easy it was. I was able to like tell them that look, this part of the application, we should write it in F-sharp because it's uh, you know, we can easily declare our DSL for defining the rules for promotion and then use F-sharp code we have to compile those rules and now use those rules to now perform promotions and things like that. So it's those niche areas that I was able to like show them that, look, the existing tools can do the work, but it is a lot of work as opposed to using something like F-Sharp and getting it out the door quickly.
0: And you mentioned ACA in there and specifically ACA.net. Was that something that you picked up as well with the F-Sharp time or was that some exposure to ACA before your F-Sharp work? And how did each one of those kind of flow back in between the ACA.NET and your F-Sharp experience and kind of feedback each other's learning in? Because I know there's some similarities and thinking, there's some differences with the reactive programming aspect, the message passing, the stateful management, and kind of keeping that isolated and being stateful while being immutable to some extent. How did those things feed back into each other? And what was the timeline of ACA compared to the F#?
1: Okay, so I mentioned the original project where we were doing a real-time system that was for performing computer-based tests for the entire nation. And while we were doing that, we, like I told you, we, we came across the fact that you know immutability is important. The moment you put, if you're dealing with highly concurrent systems, the moment you put a lock anywhere in that system, that lock is the slowest point of that system automatically. So we needed to find a way of doing all the computation without having to use locks. So at that point, we started looking for different solutions. And that was when we came across akka.net. And when we came across akka.net, reading the history, found out that, okay, it's a port of Akka from the JVM, which uh, was written in Scala, you know, a functional language. So at that point, you know, that was when the reputation of functional languages started to rise in my company, really that was even before I had, you know, started taking F sharp seriously and all that.
0: And so Akka was a little bit before you took F sharp. Once you started playing with F sharp, taking it seriously and feeding it back in, how did the Aka.NET learnings feed into your F sharp? And then once you learned F sharp, how did you feed that back into the ACA.net learnings? So the Akka.net didn't really feed
1: into the F sharp because most of the ACA.net implementations we had were just C sharp based. But, you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, Akka.net because that was what actually, it did what is essentially a miracle because then processing when we were, when the initial implementation we had for the, like, that was like two years ago, it was taking six hours plus to process those gigs of information. And what we now, and, you know, of course the clients needed the results to be sent that day because of that, our clients was not happy stuff like that. But the moment we now realize that, okay, rather than using a database to store our state, let us instead keep our state in the ACA system and save them to raw files. And after we save them to raw files, we will now use, we have a service, we have an an ACA actor that will just sweep that information using bulk insert into the database. So it wasn't until we did that that our processing time dropped from that six hours to about 25 minutes. Don't imagine. So it was a huge boost for us, right? So at that point, selling ACA was like a, you know, a, what's the word now? It was a hero, essentially. So, but by the time I was able to like tell them that, oh, look, the original ACA was written in Scala. That now, you know, helped, you know, change the perception of functional programming in my office.
0: And if you pick up Akka first and you learn F-sharp, and I've heard that the ACA.net side plays really nicely with F sharp. What were some of those things that changed if you were able to take advantage of the benefits of F sharp tied with the Aka and how you approached using the Aka.NET and the rest of the code because you were now using F sharp with it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because the F sharp, I don't know how the Aka team did it, but somehow the F sharp API is way more powerful than the C Sharp API. For akka.net, so with akka.net in the C# API, you essentially create what is a class that inherits from a receive actor, and you just specify the messages you want to receive, and that's it. You have no control over how the messages are sent, and all those kind of things. But the F# API takes it a step further. So with the F# API, they have a, what is an actor expression, and they have the ability for you to serialize and transfer actors. So For example, you could have your web farm, your farm of actor systems, could be using a version of DLL, and then you could serialize actors and send them over the wire and they would like reify them in memory using F-sharp, F-sharp has a quotations. There's a feature of F-sharp called the F-sharp quotations that allows you quote blocks of code. So essentially, you can put your actor in quotes, serialize it, send it over the wire using f They've already built all of that into Akka.net, And those actors would become available on the remote system without having to change DLLs, without having to essentially upgrade the application. So that's one of the powerful features about it. The second like powerful feature about it is that it gives you access to the inbox. So with the C-sharp API, you don't have access to the inbox. But with the F-sharp one, you do have access to the inbox. And it's even much nicer. So you could just take a function and just wrap it in an actor straight away, as opposed to the C sharp, which requires a full blown class. So the F sharp API is so much nicer compared to the C sharp API. And once I was able to sell ACA to most of my coworkers, you know, selling them that, oh, look, what you're doing in ACA is nice, but look at what the F sharp equivalent looks like. It allows you to declare states as a mutually recursive function. So you could have functions that uh, reference themselves and those functions would be the different states of the actor, which is very neat and very straightforward. So yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it.
0: And I believe in your conversation, you mentioned you had a coworker with some Erling experience and with the functional programming experience. If you had that coworker, And he was talking about his Erlang experience and functional programming experience, how much of that helped feed in as you were learning this stuff and even taking advantage of the aka.net stuff if it's very similar. And because I believe you've also mentioned something about maintaining state and not needing to actually persist to a database. And if you were kind of doing that with the aka, that sounds something that's very Erlang-ish is you don't need a database if you can just hold everything in your actor's. How much of that stuff that you got from this coworker helped feed into your learnings of F Sharp or even Aka.net? Okay, so
1: actually, the first coworker I worked with who was looking at Erlang that was actually at my previous place of work. So he was the one that first mentioned functional programming. You know, up until that point, I had never heard of functional programming before. So he was the one who said, "There's this thing." Erlang is a functional program and that he's looking into it. And I was like, why? What are you doing it for? And, you know, he explained that it is a completely different way of thinking. And, you know, that was what, like, you know, got my fascination. Like, okay, this functional programming is sounding interesting. But then I mistook it for, like, procedural programming. So I thought that, oh, functional programming is just procedural programming with a bow tie or something like that. So, but It wasn't until Yankui's interview in .NET Rocks that I realized that oh, functional programming is way more than just you know Pascal or something like that.
0: Okay, and I wasn't sure how much of when that overlap was if some of those lessons could be borrowed by pinging that coworker and say, "Well, you're doing this. I know you've talked about the actor model. Are there any tips?" And I didn't know how much of a support system you had for picking up and learning some of this stuff, whether it's the ACA side or the F-sharp side?
1: So my experience with functional programming and F-sharp in general is that I was just stumbling on two things, right? Like, until you mentioned it just now that the the idea of, you know, storing all the state in a memory, in your actors, and later, like either serializing it to file and not needing the database, that has never occurred to me. In fact, you know, we just stumbled upon it. It was because... At the time, we had a machine. It was just a single server, but that was a very beefy server. It had like a 120 cores or so. Yeah. Take 120 cores with terabytes of hard disk space. But even that, even that server couldn't handle the, we were using SQL server at the time. It couldn't handle the workload of the amount of queries we were pushing to it. So it was always failing to the point where even we tried stored procedures to try and see if we could accelerate the speed at which it's uh, entering into the database, but it was still not good enough. So it wasn't until we now decided that, okay, having a single source database where we could just push all the data to is just too much. Let us try storing it to files first, then sweeping those files into the DB. In essence, what I'm trying to say is that we were forced to not consider the, the database our single source of truth. Rather, we should consider the program itself, the, the application to be the source of truth. So it's one of those things that we stumbled upon, not because we had maybe seen it in Erlang or something.
0: And it sounds like you've been very fortunate in stumbling a lot of these patterns first and then realizing that, oh, there's something else here and being able to make some of those connections. And one of the reasons I kind of wondering about that is you also mentioned you've got this interest in immutable databases. Some of that probably comes from the .NET background, because I know event sourcing was big. If you're talking about functional programming and immutability in general, that's big. What actually kind of triggered that interest in the ideas around immutable databases and made it something that sounds interesting and appealing to you?
1: Yeah, thank you. The same application still. What happened was we tried... I told you the database was too slow for, to handle the kind of workloads we were dealing with. And we ended up using flat files, right? To, to just store the data first, then have a separate service, you know, just push that data to the database. Because one of the things we realized was that sorting duplicates was one of the most difficult things you could ever do. So we were now forced to just accept everything. And then at the point where we are creating, now filter out the duplicates. But at the point where you're just accepting everything, at that point, why do you, really need, do you really need a database at that point? So that was one of the small tenets we got out of it. The second was that, like I told you, we had a system that was real-time and all that. But you know, Nigeria is not like Western countries and stuff where you have good connection everywhere across the country. We had very bad connections in certain states. So what we did was we had the servers in those states would cache the data. They would store the data locally and then they would return the servers back to headquarters and we had a feature where it gave the users the ability to reset the application essentially they asked for that feature to reset the application and you know wipe the database clean and things like that So because we knew it was a dangerous feature, we decided, okay, we're going to put guards and blocks. It was a setting you had to go and enable. After enabling the setting, you would click wipe exam or something like that. And even after you did that, it would still ask you, are you sure this is the consequence of, and so on and so forth. And out of the 400 centers we sent out these machines to, there was one where the person went through all those hoops and still reset the database, still emptied all the data. All the data was lost. So when he brought the laptop back, we looked at it and we were confused because we were like, "Ah, why would he do that? So we had to get some SQL server tools to like get the data back from the log. And even that wasn't good enough. So ultimately, the candidates had to rewrite that exam. And that was very painful. And the PR nightmare alone from that incident was just crazy. So it was at that point, we started to ask ourselves as a team, like, Data is key, right? So how come we have tools like source control where we never lose code, whereas we are free to lose data? So it was at that point we started, you know, looking at, okay, can we have a database that is immutable, similar to Git, such that anytime you added data, it just adds to the database. If you try to remove, it just you know, adds a statement of removal or it retracts data, it retracts facts from the DB. So that was where my interest in Immutable Database started. And I took a look at a few of them. There are just two of them right now. The first one is Event source And the second one is Atomic. I think, from the guy who did Clojure. And it's a pretty good idea. And I feel like it's going to be the future of storing data because storage nowadays is very cheap. And more importantly, I feel like it is more natural. To the functional paradigm. So, for example, in functional programming, we know that things are immutable by default. In other words, once you create data, once you create an object, or when you create a piece of data, you can't change it. You can either replace it or create another one on top. But at any, that's why they call it uh, persistent data stores or something like that, which means that it is always available. You you always have every history of this object is always in memory uh, or something like that. So, the functional paradigm is not mutation-friendly, doesn't like a mutation. You know, functional programming in general doesn't really like mutation. So as a result, it's kind of funny that our databases are essentially mutation-heavy. So you have a record in your database and somebody goes and changes the value of that record. It's still the same record, but what you've done now is that that history, the previous records, are now lost, essentially. But if you had an immutable database, all of a sudden you would be able to use your database as a value which is really appealing. And I think it will make a lot of sense for people who are writing functional programs.
0: And you mentioned event store, and I know that kind of came out of the C Sharp arena with some of the command query, responsibility, segregation, and event sourcing stuff. Was that something that you had been exposed to in your time doing C Sharp or Java that kind of translated into some of these ideas? Because when I was working in that ecosystem, there was that idea and it just was one of those things looking at the actor model that kind of aligned pretty well because if everything is just messages as object-oriented was stated to be and you've got the actor model either be it ACA, aka.net or Erlang that these messages that these events are being transferred was that something that you had been having exposure to or was that something that you looked back at after and discovered event sourcing yeah, it was something I looked back after and
1: discovered event sourcing. Event sourcing doesn't quite cut it because with event sourcing, to get the actual state of the world, you have to replay all the events back to the beginning of time to get like what the current state is. I know, yes, they have ways of mitigating it, but it wasn't meant to be a form of data stop, I say. Its job is just to capture events and hold them so that you can replay them later in your system, through your system. The one that is Closer to what I'm describing is Datomic, right? So Datomic has the concept of facts, okay? So you declare facts and those facts are immutable. So the only thing you can do is declare facts on top of facts. You can declare facts that retract or do things like that. So Datomic is more tuned towards, you know, having a data store that's not just an event store, a data store that is immutable. Data is immutable, but at any point in time, you can walk up to it and say, what are the current facts? And it will let you know that.
0: Part of that is, I ask, because you brought up the relation to Git and other source control mechanisms. Is that something that, after you started getting more familiar with this functional programming, changed the way and changed your understanding of source control and things like Git and potentially Mercurial? Or did you have a good understanding before that, and then that might have helped piggyback some of your start with some of these functional programming ideas. And as you mentioned, if we can do this for our code, why can't we do this for our database? Where was that relation between realizing that you've got this data store for your file system with Git that's immutable and immutable objects and immutable data structures and tying that in with the immutable database? How did those kind of all feedback between each other?
1: Yeah, I think it was a mixture of playing around with Git and the whole ACA.NET's approach to concurrency, which is that in ACA.NET, you don't lock anything. Rather, you have an actor who has serial access to the resource that you are trying to lock. So let's assume I have a record in my database that refers to a single object, and I wanted to change that record You know, over time. I would send messages to that actor, and the actor would be responsible for changing that record. So it was that idea of having concurrency without locks and looking at the Git file system and how it uses, you know, that approach with immutability that got me thinking. But it was the moment we had this incident where someone went and just wiped the database clean and we couldn't get data back that it's now dawned on us that data is sacred. And no matter what, as developers, we should never lose sight of that. For example, somebody could change her last name okay, maybe she got married or something. And it has actually caused problems before because maybe she goes to the bank and they see that, oh, this your last name is not, or you change your account and they see that, oh, this your account is a new account. Are you trying to be fraudulent? Or things like that. There are scenarios like that. So, but I think it took the period of looking at Git, looking at the file system, looking at how Akka.net handles concurrency and then having an incident to realize that this is a serious issue that I think, we as a developer community need to work on and fix.
0: And in the pre-call, you kind of mentioned that one of your wishes for the future would be to be able to see more of these immutable databases. What are you thinking around that? Is that something that you're just hoping people out there realize the value of it, realize that the storage is getting cheap now and it becomes something that people realize is an option or... What do you see for the future around this as just someone who's looking towards these ideas and seeing coworkers and whether or not they realize the benefit of some of these ideas?
1: Okay, yeah, yeah, i like I said, I looked at a few of them, I looked at the atomic and it's it's a pretty good tool, but it's not open source, and it didn't quite it's not really the money because you know I could just walk up to a manager in my office and tell them, "Oh, we need this immutable database." and the company would pay for it. So it, was, it wasn't It was like I was paying for it from my own purse or something like that. But it didn't quite fit the kind of applications we were trying to build, and it's closure-heavy, essentially. So the only way you'd be able to consume it over .NET is to use a REST API. So like I said, what I would want is something like maybe MongoDB or something, to have like a, a Mongo-ish interface that I could just walk up to a collection, ask it for a particular document and it would return that document and that document was immutable so every time there was a change to that document i would get a brand new document so that's my actual vision for something like that and I actually plan on writing that application in fact if me and a few of my co-workers we are looking at doing the preliminary work writing a database is not a small task And we don't even know if we have the experience or capability to do it. But it's one of the things that I want to see if I can just start up something, you know, start up the conversation or come up with a prototype or a demo and see how it goes from there.
0: And then that leads into, you started introducing F-Sharp into your work environment. You've got stuff out in production. What is the community in your local area look like? As far as interest, and you mentioned as well thinking about meetups and what are you doing to help? I know you're putting blogs and stuff out there for a larger community, but is there any interest in the community where you are? Because I know certain cities, even over here in the States, have certain profiles of the businesses that they run and what languages they like to look at and how willing and accepting they are. What's the community look like where you are for building a community of people? in a larger set than just the handful of people at your company that have now adopted F-Sharp to help spread the word where you are. Yeah, yeah. Again, the
1: community that we have here in Lagos is is also, you know, organic. It's mainly most of my friends. We have a a group on Facebook, Codas Lounge, where we just hang out, just talk about technology and stuff. And I introduced it there. So... A lot of them have been like interested, talking to me about it. Oh, this F-sharp, we've seen it and so on and so forth. So along that line, I started thinking of, okay, maybe we should have a meetup sometime where we can sit down, go through some code cutters, you know, work on F-sharp in problems and so on and so forth. But like I told you, Lagos is a different beast entirely. And most of these people have two-hour commutes on a daily basis and their Saturdays and Sundays are also packed. So organizing a meetup has been challenging, but I'm looking at maybe in 2017 next year to come up with a webinar or something like that where we can all sit down or hang out or connect and you know, just talk about F-Sharp, talk about the challenges people are facing in F-Sharp, talk about adopting F-Sharp in their workplaces and things like that.
0: Some of that is just the general community building because you've had... At- companies that are either very Java-centric or very .NET-centric or some of them were Ruby communities or still PHP communities or whatever the language is, and just being able to break that through and build that community in your area. So it may be worth getting you back on to share some of those lessons of just when you have people who are crunched for time, how you fit that in, how you make it available. But one to at least see how that was looking from your perspective because there's some of those lessons from wherever you are so we're coming up on time, but is there anything that we haven't covered that you at least want to raise attention to or that you think we should let the audience know about in general?
1: Well, right now, you know, what interests me a lot about FSharp is actually .net core. Uh, and I would like us to talk about it a bit because I feel like it has the potential to really take off because apparently, you know, I don't know if you've been noticing but you know there's like the, there's a new Microsoft now. It's not the same Microsoft of Five ten years ago, and that new Microsoft is the one pushing .NET Core, and from the performance things we've seen about it, from the little things I've seen about it, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, the people in the F# community aren't that you know eager to jump on it, and for good reason because you know Microsoft is C# centric at the moment, and they make a lot of changes to the platform. So probably when the platform has stabilised, F# is F# development is going to take off on .NET Core. But the interesting part with .NET Core is that it levels the playing field, essentially, which is going to make my job easier as someone who is trying to introduce people to F-sharp and stuff like that, is that it levels the playing field because now the tooling and stuff have been removed from Visual Studio and are now command line based like Node and so on and so forth. So from a tooling perspective, in terms of the commands you are using and the compiler and stuff like that, F-sharp and C-sharp are on the same level. So it's now a question of language, and I'm pretty confident that if it's a discussion on language, F-Sharp will always come out on top. But that idea of, okay, now, because part of the problem with F-Sharp currently is that Microsoft does a lot of uh, improvements to C-Sharp, and even though yes, has the F-Sharp community, and that's another thing I think I need to point out, that the F-Sharp community is very separate from Microsoft. In fact, Microsoft has little effect. They still are the major contributors, but most of the things that happen in the f community are by the community themselves. Well, I think like moving into .NET Core is going to really increase f adoption because most people are going to now see that, okay, every improvement that is added to .NET affects all languages in .NET, not just c So that's one thing I think I'm excited about. And if I shout out to Enrico Sada and the people who are working on .NET Core, I really have great respect for them. And, you know, I'm happy to see what comes out of it.
0: So is that one of those things that it's mainly going to be the features that are coming into core and being put on core that you think is going to help drive the adoption of F Sharp, or is it some of the multi-platform support that they're advocating with .NET Core, where the goal is at least that it can run on a Linux system, an OS ten system, a Windows system. It starts to become platform independent, and you start to have a better portable virtual machine like the Java ecosystem has. So is where does that fit in with adoption of F-Sharp, or is it mainly just the tooling and the libraries around .NET Core then?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of both. .NET Core is obviously where Microsoft is putting a lot of their efforts into. So ASP.NET Core is built primarily for .NET Core. But what I think is impressive, or what I think is going to really play out in the long run is that there is a lot of... .NET Core is very open. So it wasn't like an afterthought. It wasn't like they did it on Windows, then they just ported it to Mac and Linux. They built it from scratch. It's a complete rewrite of .NET. From scratch, built cross-platform and the tooling support are now built to be language agnostic. So there is nothing... The ASP.NET tooling, the command line stuff, there is nothing about it that is .NET, that is C-sharp Centric, everything there also works for F-sharp equally, and if other languages were to come on board, it would work perfectly for them as well. So, I think that's where we are going to see a lot of improvements, a lot of innovation happening in that space in the next few days. In fact, I don't know if you heard about it, but Samsung is now part of the .NET Foundation, and most of their and their Tizen OS is now going to run .NET Core which now extends the reach of F-Sharp. So you can use F-Sharp to write mobile applications like Scott Nimrod does, or you could use it to write TV applications, you know, whatever. So the reach of .NET Core is going to, in the next coming years, is going to be significant, in my opinion.
0: And so you're thinking it's the wider adoption of the .NET Core that's going to help open up the adoption in Maybe you're going to pull in new people and they're not going to default to C sharp. They might default to F sharp then because you start getting Linux people or OS X people as well starts to be able to take advantage of this and say, well, if I've got these X number of languages to choose from, I'm not going to be one of the pragmatists who already knows C sharp. If I'm going to be learning something new, I might as well pick up F sharp kind of thing.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So since we're at time. And I don't want to take too much of your time because you're getting into the evenings because we're offset at this point, but I don't want to take up much more of your evening. Is there anything that you want to make mention to? Is there anything you want to plug? You're talking about some of this stuff. Where are some resources that people can find you and find references and resources for anybody who's out there with F-Sharp, either from you or from anybody in general that they think are valuable? And then where can people find you online?
1: Okay, so my blog, I have a blog because like I told you, my goal is to get as many pragmatists to try out F-Sharp as possible. So I have a blog where I describe, write about some of the ways of getting into F-Sharp if you're a pragmatist, if you're just someone who's not interested in academic exercises, you just want to get your hand wet with functional programming and stuff. So my blog is uh, medium.com slash world F-Sharp. The real world F-Sharp, is in it has hyphens in between them. So that's essentially where I put all my blog posts on the ideas of, okay, this is how you create an application in F-Sharp. This is how you run migrations, do database stuff, you know, just mundane things are the things I put on there. There is my Twitter handle, at odtrice. I tweets mostly on things of f-sharp although once in a while i can tweet other things too because i do android development and web development as well i think that's all my twitter is fine
0: and i'll get those and some of those other links that you mentioned in the show notes for the other resources that people can find to get a good overview of some of that f-sharp stuff and see what triggered your interest and maybe that it might trigger them if they're listening and Are looking to figure out how to either adopt it themselves or sell it into their organization by having those resources for others. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo, and once again, thank you, Odie, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you, and I am definitely sure we'll have to get you on in the future to give a recap of how you find F Sharp and building the community from just your handful of friends that are interested into making this something and. Helping to bring it along to others, whether or not it's your friends introducing it to their companies or any other future companies in the road, to see how that progress of helping spread the word of F sharp is going locally and how you found F sharp being picked up globally, even as a part of the larger community. So, thanks for taking your time to join me. It was a pleasure talking to you and very interesting getting to dig into some of your stories and figure out some of those lessons we can learn from. Introducing some of these languages in at work. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.